Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to The Irish Times. In June 2019, Conor Gallagher writes, Anacresial Murder Trial, The Complete Story. Listeners, this is the first instalment in a five-part series. The full series can be found on the NOAA app under the story titled Anacresial Murder Trial. Interview 5 the interview room in Finglas Garda Station is not a nice place to be at the best of times. It is small, stuffy and not designed for more than three people to use comfortably for any length of time. By 2.30pm on May 25th last year, all five of its occupants were feeling stressed. Among them was a 13-year-old boy who had been answering questions for nearly 10 hours over two days. His mother, who in the first interview had sat beside the boy holding his hand, had moved her chair further away. She appeared to become more distressed by every new question put to her son. The boy's solicitor, who had remained silent for most of the process, had begun to clash with the interviewing Gardee more frequently over their questioning. For detectives Donald Daly and his colleague Damien Gannon, the stress came from the knowledge that they had only a few more hours to get the boy, who would later become known to the public as Boy B, to reveal how 14-year-old Anna Creasel had been murdered 11 days previously. The investigators had a mountain of forensic evidence, but it was all against Boy B's co-accused and one-time best friend, Boy A. They knew Boy B was present when Anna died and they knew he had played a role in bringing her to the abandoned house where she was killed. They also knew there was a big difference between knowing something and proving it. It had been an exhausting process. Slowly but surely, the detective's questioning had caused the boy to revise his account of the day of Anna's murder. Boy B had started the interview process the day before by repeating what he first told Garthy the previous week, that Boy A had asked him to call to Anna's leak slip home and bring her to him in the park so they could talk, and that he left Anna with Boy A in St. Catherine's Park before going home to do his homework. As part of their investigation, Gardy had examined more than 700 hours of CCTV footage from the area around where Anna disappeared. Detectives Daly and Gannon put it to Boy B repeatedly that the route he claimed they took that day in no way matched what was captured by the cameras located in and around St. Catherine's Park. But Boy B stuck to his story, offering alternate explanations to Gardy for the inconsistencies between the CCTV footage and his account. The first change to his story came the next morning at the start of interview four. The boy had spent the night in an office on the second floor of the station. 
Because the Children Act forbids child suspects being detained in cells, Garthy had cleared out an office for the boy and brought in bedding so he and his mother could sleep there overnight. The station had been closed to all other prisoners to ensure the boy didn't come into contact with any other adults. His solicitor told the detectives the boy had reflected on his statement overnight and wanted to make a change. I'm going to retell the story of what actually happened, Boy B said. What I told you yesterday was a lie. He went on to say he and Anna had met Boy A by the BMX track in the park, not by Meadowfields as he previously claimed. Despite the dramatic preamble, the boy's admission of dishonesty did little to advance the case. He claimed he lied because he initially got confused about his movements in the park and felt he couldn't change his story without arousing suspicion. Up to then, Boy B had remained remarkably calm. A highly intelligent child, he spoke calmly, clearly and in full sentences. When Garthy asked if he knew what words like detention or murder meant, he gave concise, accurate answers. At one point, Gannon asked if he knew what the word arrest meant. That you are detaining me for something that I did or might have done, Boy B replied. He appeared to have a large vocabulary for his age. He described Anna as wearing synthetic leather trousers and put his answers into context when they might otherwise have been confusing. He sounded more like a young adult in a job interview than a 13-year-old boy accused of murder. In short, up to that point, he appeared more than a match for the detective's gentle interview approach. But, despite appearing relatively inconsequential, Boy B's concession that he had told lies marked a turning point in the interviews and in the wider case. It provided the detectives with a valuable tool. Because he had admitted to lying once, Daly and Gannon could now cast doubt over everything else the boy had told them. Now, whenever the boy said anything which sounded fishy, they could remind him he had already lied to them and had been found out. The Garda Shiakona interview model, GSIM, was introduced following the Morris Tribunal, which heavily criticised the informal and sometimes oppressive interview tactics employed by the force. The GSIM introduced a standardised approach to interviews across the Garda. All operational members are now trained in eliciting information from victims, witnesses and suspects while being careful not to lead the suspect into simply telling them what they want to hear. After completing an intensive two-week course in the Garda College in Temple Moor, Daly had qualified as a Level 3 interviewer, the second highest in the four-tier training hierarchy. Level 3 interviewers usually focus on serious crimes such as murder and rape. They're trained to prepare extensively for each interview. If a suspect has an excuse for their actions, it's vital the interviewer can immediately cite any evidence which might disprove it. Although their approach seems natural and fluid, Level 3 interviewers are actually following a strict formula. The first step is to build rapport. This creates a non-judgmental, non-coercive atmosphere conducive to disclosure, according to a 2016 study of the GSIM model. 
Daly spent large parts of the first interview asking Boy B about his interests and hobbies. He asked what video games he liked, Halo and Outlast, and about his favourite Marvel character, Deadpool. There was laughter as Daly told Boy B he'd have to spell the name of his favourite YouTube star, PewDiePie, for him. Any outdoor interests? Daly asked. The boy said sometimes he and his friend used the pull-up bars in the park. Can you do a pull-up? The detective asked. Yeah, replied the boy. Good man. There was no problem with the boy taking breaks whenever he wanted and there were several trips to the vending machine or shop to get him chewing gum or Ribena. With the suspect put at ease, the next step, as per Daly's training, was to let the boy tell his story in his own words, without interruptions. Next, he began challenging the boy, gently at first, by highlighting the inconsistencies and improbabilities in his account. This is your opportunity, Daly told him in a low voice. Now is the time for the truth. Aside from boredom and sometimes frustration, Boybee had to that point shown little emotion or distress. That changed as Daly and Gannon started showing him evidence from the abandoned house. When Daly showed him a picture of the crime scene with Anna's body pixelated out, Boybee held his head in his hands and responded, Jesus, one of my closest friends. He quickly added he was referring to Boy A not Anna. Wait a minute. Holy shit. Oh my God, he said when shown a picture of the insulation tape which had been wrapped around Anna's neck. He told Gardie he had recently given the tape to Boy A. Over the years, detectives tend to pick up their own interviewing techniques for dealing with dishonest suspects. Some will pause the interview suddenly at crucial moments, catching the suspect by surprise and throwing them off guard. Others like to refuse requests for a cigarette or glass of water until the suspect gives them new information. In some cases it makes sense to appeal to a suspect's conscience. In others, vague insinuations about lengthy prison sentences are more effective. In this case, the boy's age meant Daly was highly constrained in using any tactics which might later be viewed by a court as oppressive or intimidating. However, although it remained gentler than most murder interviews, by the fifth session, the atmosphere in the room had changed drastically. Frustration was starting to creep into Daly's voice. His tone suggested he was getting tired of the boy's lies. But he never lost his temper. Instead, he continued to implore the boy to come clean. You owe it to everyone to start telling the truth here. You owe it to your ma'am, to yourself to tell the truth, because unfortunately, a girl has been brutally murdered. Though he had changed several important aspects of his story by that point, Boybee continued to deny any knowledge of what happened to Anna in the abandoned house. The most important breakthrough came in the late afternoon of May 25th, about halfway through interview five. Daly had just informed the boy that they had a witness who saw a teenager they believed to be him walking through a field and towards the abandoned house. The boy admitted to going into the field to look around, but insisted he went no further. Daly sighed, You're making this up as you go along, I have to say. 
I'm presenting facts and evidence to you and you're changing your story to suit. You can't keep doing this. There was a long pause before boy B asked his mother to leave the room. Daly said this was not possible as he was a minor and required a guardian present at all times. His solicitor suggested they take a break, but Daly wanted to keep going. I think we're at a crucial point here. The truth. That's all we want. Boy B took a deep breath before telling Gardi Boy A went into the house with Anna. I left and that's when I heard the scream and then I ran, he said. It was a really strong scream. I knew that it was Anna, but since Boy A was there, she'd be fine. He'd protect her. The scream was like really loud. Just before it ended, it got muffled, like someone covered her mouth. After dozens of lies, the boy had admitted for the first time knowing something had happened to Anna. He started to weep, as did his mother. When the moment was played back in court exactly one year later, Anna's mother, Geraldine, would also weep. There was much worse to come. Anna's last day Anna wasn't very good at geography. One of the several ailments afflicting the young girl was short-term memory problems, making it difficult for her to hold all geological terms in her head. In general, Anna wasn't academically inclined, her mother later said. Part of this was down to her having been adopted from Russia at the age of two and a half, leaving her playing catch-up with her peers in English language skills. Problems with her hearing compounded the issue. There were exams the following week, so on the morning of Sunday, May 13th, Geraldine Creasel planned to sit down with her daughter to help her study. No, ma'am, you must be exhausted. We can do it later, Anna told her mother. Geraldine agreed and the family went about their business. There was to be a small family gathering later, but they had a few hours to relax beforehand. In the meantime, Anna engaged in one of her favourite pastimes, watching movies with her mother and eating popcorn. Later, Geraldine ordered pizza for the party. Anna didn't like pizza, so she walked to nearby Leak Slip and brought home a spice bag from the Chinese takeaway. Back at the house, the kids played while the adults enjoyed a drink in the conservatory. At one stage, Anna and her cousin went up to her room to make a YouTube video, another of her favourite hobbies. Like nearly every other teenager, Anna used a staggering amount of social media apps, including Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat and House Party. Her favourite was YouTube. She would make videos about dancing, clothes and makeup for her some 100 subscribers. While the videos attracted many pleasant comments from viewers, they also brought poisonous barbs and even threats. One commenter told Anna to go die. Another said they would have her executed. A short time later, the family gathering ended. There was school the next day. Anna's cousins were collected and she went to bed at about 10.30pm. Before going to sleep, Anna asked her mother to wake her to say goodbye before she left for work. Like most teenagers, Anna liked to sleep in, but had promised her parents she would try getting up earlier in the morning. 
Geraldine Creasel works in a senior management position in the legal department of CIE. She was usually first up in the morning. Her husband, Patrick Creasel, was retired from his position as a French lecturer in DIT. That morning, Anna reminded her mother she needed a note to get out of school at 2.30pm. She had a counselling appointment with Kildare Youth Services, where she attended once a week. Geraldine wrote the note, kissed Anna goodbye and left to get the train to the city centre, where she had a meeting. Her daughter put on her school uniform, had something small for breakfast and left some time later. The plan was for Anna to eat lunch at school before walking to counselling. However, she decided to return home to eat before walking to her appointment. After counselling, she came home, ate a snack of some oven chips and went to her room. It was around this time she tried to ring her mother. The two frequently rang or texted each other during the day. When Anna rang at 4.02pm, Geraldine was in a meeting and couldn't answer. She texted her daughter to tell her she'd call her shortly. Patrick was relaxing out the back, taking in the May sunshine, when at 4.55pm he heard the doorbell. It was Boy B at the door. He asked for Anna. When told who was at the door, Anna was confused. She knew who this boy was, but they were by no means friends. Nonetheless, she went down and spoke to him. Patrick saw Anna standing in the door whispering to the boy. He didn't find this unusual, he would later recall. I think a lot of teens do it. She then ran back upstairs to get her hoodie before returning down and telling Patrick she was going out. Anna's mother had bought the hoodie for her online from China. It was a distinctive garment, black with writing down the sleeves. Within days, most of the country would see photographs in newspapers and on television of Anna wearing the same hoodie. Patrick reminded Anna about her exams and told her she was supposed to study that evening. Anna responded that nobody had told her this and that she wouldn't be long. I believe she meant it. I knew from the way she was saying it that she meant exactly that, Patrick would later say. Seconds after Anna left, Patrick realised he had forgotten to ask her where she was going. He went to the door where he saw Anna walking towards St. Catherine's Park. The boy, who carried a small backpack, walked ahead of her. The two didn't appear to be talking. Although it was unusual for this boy to call for Anna, Patrick was not overly concerned. She was happy when she left. She gave me a big smile. At the same time, Geraldine was on the train home. She chatted to a friend who got off at Cool Mine at about ten past five, finally giving Geraldine a chance to return Anna's call from earlier. The call went to voicemail. Geraldine didn't leave a message, as she knew she would see Anna when she got home in a few minutes. Normally she wouldn't get home so early, but that day she had taken the train because of her meeting in the city centre. She found her husband in the back garden. He told her Anna had gone out with boy B. I became immediately concerned because he has nothing to do with her, Geraldine recalled later. Nobody calls for Anna. Endlessly bullied To understand why Geraldine Creasel was so concerned when she learned Anna left the house with boy B, 
it's necessary to understand the recent events in the teenager's life. Anna was savagely bullied inside and outside school. Above all else, she wanted friends her own age, friends who weren't her cousins, but she had few. Born in February 2004 in Novokuznetsk, an industrial city in western Siberia, Anna was adopted in 2006 by Geraldine and Patrick and brought to Ireland. She was their first child. Despite having no link to Russia themselves, Anna's parents made sure she retained some connection to her native culture. They kept her name, Anastasia, although everyone would shorten it to Anna. On the day she died, her social media profile picture was a Siberian wolf. For most of primary school, Anna was a happy student despite struggling with a variety of health issues. Doctors found a tumour in her right ear which required a five and a half hour operation to remove. She could barely hear from that ear afterwards and would always walk or stand on the left side of people as a result. She had poor eyesight and a scar on the back of her head from surgery, along with another on her chin from when she fell as a young child. As she entered her teens, she also suffered from a painful condition, sometimes seen in adolescence, which occurs when the bones grow faster than the muscles. Emotional problems began to appear as primary school came to an end. On one occasion, her parents were alerted that Anna had told a teacher she was feeling suicidal. She was excited about going to secondary school, but her parents and teachers were worried. Anna's resource teacher told Geraldine and Patrick she was terrified for her because she was so innocent. She feared other students would take advantage of this. The parents met early with the management of the secondary school to highlight their concerns about Anna being a potential target for bullies. In fact, the bullies didn't even wait for her to start school. During the summer after sixth class, Anna was bullied online by third-year students who sent her sexually suggestive messages. Much of the bullying was about her height. Anna was a typical Siberian, her mother would later say in court, strong and tall. By 13 years old, she stood at 5 foot 8. She looked much older than her years, her mother said. She could have passed for an 18-year-old. She was taller than me, Patrick recalled with a smile. The bullies also mocked the fact she was adopted, telling her she had a fake mam and dad. Geraldine and Patrick took screenshots of some of the messages and showed them to the school. But the situation did not improve after she started school. She was endlessly bullied, Geraldine said. That Halloween, Anna came home to her parents hysterical and terrified, she had been walking home from supervising a disco for young children. She volunteered for everything, Geraldine said, when four boys approached. One asked her repeatedly for sex before hitting her on the backside. A complaint was made to Gardi and the boy received a caution. Anna would walk for hours at a time, usually while listening to music through her distinctive blue headphones. She almost always walked alone. You would see other girls walking in groups and Anna would be walking alone, Geraldine would tell the court. Her parents painted a picture of a kind-hearted, innocent girl who craved friendship. 
She loved spending time at home with her family, but craved someone her own age to hang around with. People didn't understand her. She was unique and full of fun, Patrick said. She couldn't hate anyone, even though some of the people were bullying her. She was disappointed with people. That happened quite regularly. She tried to make friends, but might say the wrong thing. She was a teenager. He said Anna started to act out in worrying ways. There were fights at school, one of which resulted in a suspension. One day she painted a black eye on herself before going into school. It was attention-seeking. For me it was an expression of pain she suffered on the inside, Geraldine said. She said she felt invisible, said Patrick. At one point it was discovered Anna had set up fake social media accounts which she was using to send bullying messages to herself. From then on, she had to hand over all the passwords to her apps to Geraldine who would check her phone every night. She didn't like it, but she knew if she didn't, I would take the phone, her mother said. Shortly before Anna's death, Geraldine found a photo on the phone of her blindfolded and tied to a chair. Anna told her mother it was part of a prank. She and another girl were pretending she was in trouble to see if another boy would come and rescue her. As Anna's emotional problems grew, her parents felt she needed some outside support. They approached Kildare Youth Services, who said they couldn't see Anna because she had self-harmed. Anna had recently cut her arm with the scissors. Her parents felt she did it in imitation of a boy she knew. She was referred to Pieta House, where she did well. They judged her as being at very low risk of suicide. They had to ring Patrick and get him to pick her up from the sessions, as she was scared to walk home alone because of the bullies. Following six sessions in Pieta House, she was accepted by Kildare Youth Services, the service she was attending at the time of her murder. Anna did have a handful of friends, including a girl who would call over for sleepovers and to watch films. But she was certainly not friends with Boy B, something Geraldine was well aware of when she returned home on Monday, May 14th. That was the first instalment of Anna Creasial Murder Trial, The Complete Story. It was written by Connor Gallagher and read by Gronya Brookfield for Noah. Be sure to continue listening to part two of this five-part series on the Noah app. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.